We've been studying through the book of Hebrews, a fascinating book in the New Testament. We don't know who the writer was, and we don't know specifically who the recipients were, but we know the writer knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. There are some 30 direct quotes from the Old Testament in the book of Hebrews and over 40 allusions to passages in the Old Testament. This guy knew God's Word. We also know that these were Jewish believers. They had come from uh, the Jewish faith, and they were new in their faith, and they're also getting ready to face persecution. And so the writer has a lot to tell these believers in um, wherever they were located, a lot to tell them about who they are in Christ and how they are to live their faith. Today, I want us to look at a doctrine of Scripture that I think is just critical uh, in our lives. It's so important that we nail uh, this doctrine down. It's so important that we understand it, that we believe it. And I know in my life, uh, it has been a game changer when I've understood the love that God has for me in Jesus Christ and this doctrine that we call eternal security or uh, the assurance that we can have as believers. So I grew up in in a church... Uh, a great church. Um, it had uh, tremendous worship. It was a small church. If we were, had 100 people there on a Sunday, that was, that was a big uh, Sunday for us. And it was a small church, great worship, great fellowship, and tremendous care. Uh, there was great community. People knew one another, and they cared for one another. When my dad uh, was diagnosed with cancer uh, in March of 1977, Man, that church just rallied around us, and they were with us, and they supported us, and they prayed for us. I remember, I remember my dad going through a lot of pain. In the middle of the night, uh, the pastor would come, and, and he would come to our house, and he would pray with my dad. My dad died six months later. Uh, he went very fast. And our church, again, around us again. 22 years later, when my mom passed away, uh, we had already moved here to Pittsburgh, Laura and I, our family. Uh, but, man, that church rallied around. Again, it was a place you could use your gifts. Uh, It was a place that cared for each other. Some great things happening. But there were some things we believed that were a little challenging doctrinally. We were a bit uh, legalistic. And um, there were four big things that in our church we talked a lot about that you never did. These were bad things. One, you didn't go to movies at all not even Disney movies. I was deprived uh, in my childhood, right? No smoking, no drinking, and absolutely no dancing because you know what happens when you go to a dance. I I don't know. They never told us, (laughs) but it wasn't good. But the way they said it, it was not good. those were the four big things. Murder and the Ten Commandments, they were, you know, didn't, didn't do those things either. But they didn't make the big four things that you were not supposed to do. And if you did those things, we were dogmatic about it. If you did those things, you couldn't be a Christian. You could lose your salvation. I remember uh, coming back home from college And uh, during, uh, I think it was after my freshman year, we had a Bible study, and and there were a lot of kids back from college in our little town. We, everyone knew everybody, and and, and we came, and we had a Bible study, and there was one girl who, um, she she had had a a rough high school 
time. She was a bit wild. She was a bit promiscuous, and, and everybody knew it in our town. And uh, I remember in this Bible study, uh, she said, you know, um, I'm ashamed of what I did. Uh, I'm not proud of it at all. But she said, I, I had trusted in Christ, and even though I was away from him during that time, I believe if I died during that time, I would have still gone to heaven. I would have spent eternity with him. And at that time, I said, ah, I don't know if that's the truth or not. I really don't know. So I applied to Dallas Seminary. I always wanted to go into ministry, and I applied to Dallas Seminary. I had heard this guy named Dr. Howard Hendricks. Anyone heard of Dr. Howard Hendricks? Man, he, was a, he could teach the Bible like no one else I'd ever heard. And I thought, man, I want to go where this guy teaches. If I could teach the Bible half as well as Howard Hendricks. That would be a success for me. So I applied to Dallas Seminary, and they saw the church that I came from, and they said, um, we want you to explain this doctrine of eternal security. And so I said, fine, you can't have eternal security. And I put some passages in there, a little out of context, some of them. And they said, okay, they sent a letter back and said, thanks, but no thanks. I got rejected from Dallas Seminary. Not because of my grades. I want you to know it wasn't because of my grades, but because of that doctrine. So here's a question I want to talk about today. Can a true believer, true believer, can a true believer be in God's family one day and out of it the next? Can a true believer trust in Jesus Christ and lose that relationship with him. Can a true believer commit adultery? Be promiscuous like that my friend. Fall into homosexual temptation or or gossip. All those sins are in the same list, aren't they? Can you do those things and still be a true believer? Can a believer lose his or her salvation? Take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. We've been working our way again through this fascinating book, and we come today to Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to look specifically at verses 13 through 20, and those verses are going to address this issue of eternal security or the believer's assurance. We're going to see that in these verses. Now, In Hebrews, the writer, again, is writing to Jewish believers, and throughout the book of Hebrews, he gives some warning passages. In chapter 5, verse 11, through chapter 6, verse 20, is his third warning passage. And in this passage, he starts by being pretty blunt with those who are reading his letter. In fact, he says... By now, you guys have been Christians for a long time. By now, you should be eating thick, spiritual, juicy steak. But you're still sucking on the bottle. He said, by now, you should be teachers. You should be the ones sharing the message of Christ with with others, those in your family, those in your your neighborhood. You should be doing that. But, But you need to be taught. He said, you are dull of hearing. And in Greek, that word means uh, no push. No effort 
There's no energy. There's no urgency in your life. He was pretty blunt with them. He said, you got to pick it up. You got to leave the foundational uh, principles that you know, and you know them well, but you got to leave those and you got to begin to build. You have the foundation. Now you have to build the spiritual house. You got to put the walls, you got to put the roof on. You got to build your spiritual life. And he gets into this passage. It's a very difficult passage in Hebrews in chapter six, verses four through six. He says, you, you, you have been enlightened by your relationship with Jesus. You, you have tasted the good things that he has to offer. You have fellowship with the Holy Spirit, but, but you have fallen away. And that word fallen away doesn't mean they've lost their salvation. It's only used one time in Greek, but in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, what we call the Septuagint, that word is used four times, and there it means uh, to act unfaithfully. You have, you're, not acting, you're not acting like you should as believers. You're a believer, but you're not acting like it. Now, in the next section the writer kind of, he turns the corner and he says, even though, even though you're not acting like it, even though you need to grow up, even though you need to build the spiritual house, he says, I still, I still see signs of you being a Christian. I still see some good things there. And he talks about that in verses nine through 12. He says, one, I, I see that your salvation is producing good works. Now, we know that works don't produce salvation, right? You can't work your way to have a relationship with God. I mean, how good would you have to be to have a relationship with God if you worked it, right? Only perfect, and none of us are perfect. For by grace you're saved through faith, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, not of works, gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. So works do not produce salvation. But once you are a Christian, then what? Ephesians 2.10. For we're created in Christ Jesus to do the good works that God prepared in advance for us to do. So good works don't make you a Christian. When you are a Christian, God has some great things for you to do. He, he has some. You're his workmanship. We are his, we're his masterpiece. He has great things for you to do. So the writer said, I see some of that. I can see faint hint of that. I see that salvation produces some good works in you. Love demonstrated by serving. You're serving each other. You're demonstrating your love by serving each other. You are preserved by God until the end. You're persevering. Now remember, he's writing to a group of people that are getting ready to go through persecution. Their life's on the line. And he says, you're hanging in there. Even though you should, you should be growing, you're still hanging in there. God is, God is preserving you. God is keeping you. God promises that when he starts something in you, what he's gonna, what's he going to do? He's going to finish it. And so you're doing the things that God's calling you to do. And, and then you're demonstrating faith. So you're doing these things that, that, that demonstrate you have a spiritual heartbeat. Now here's the question. The writer says, you're dull of hearing. You haven't grown up yet. you got to grow up. And you still have the spiritual heartbeat. So how do those two things work together? You're not where you should be, but you're demonstrating some spiritual fruit. Now, in verses 13 through 20, the writer's going to say, look, here is the deal. 
here's what you have to understand, and here's what you have to drive home in your heart. Your salvation is not based on you, right? Salvation is of the Lord. It's based on two things, and he's going to put forth these two things in the verses we're looking at today. It's based on the promise of God, because God never goes back on his promise, and it's based on the work of his son, Jesus Christ. So let's look at this. Chapter 6, verse 13 through 15. For when God made a promise to Abraham, so now he's going back to the Old Testament. He would choose Abraham because Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation. He's writing to Jewish Christians. And he's going to choose Abraham because Abraham trusted in God. Genesis 15, 6. Remember, Abraham believed God and it was accredited to him or it was imputed to him as righteousness. It wasn't based on anything Abraham had done, but all based on God. When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. When we, if we want to swear by someone, we swear on the Bible, right? This is greater than us, or we swear by someone. But if God is going to swear, there's no one bigger than God. There's no one greater than God. So he only can swear by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it by an oath. Now again, he's writing to Jewish Christians. And they would have, when they heard, when God swore by himself, they would have gone back to a time in Abraham's life when the promise came true. He had a son, Isaac, remember? And he has a son, Isaac. In Genesis 15, God had said, you know, they were past, he and Sarah were past childbearing age. And God said, took him outside and said, I'm going to give you descendants, as many as the stars in the heaven. And that's when Abraham believed and it was trusted to him and trusted to him as righteousness. Well, now Abraham's waited and he's waited patiently, but not perfectly because remember Sarah said, let's shortcut this thing. And she gave Hagar, her her Egyptian maidservant to Abraham and he willingly took her and they had a child, Ishmael. Ishmael became the father of of the Arab nation, tension ever since. And then later on, they had Isaac and they have Isaac now Sarah and Abraham, their only son, and what's God tell them to do? Go sacrifice Isaac. God wanted to make sure Abraham was trusting in God alone. And you remember the story. He goes to Mount Moriah. He gets ready to sacrifice uh, Isaac, and an angel stops him at the end. There's a ram caught in the thicket. He takes the ram. The ram becomes the sacrifice. And there God says, I swear by myself surely I will multiply your descendants. And that's what the writer is bringing into here. When God makes a promise, it's, you can take that to the bank, right? You don't need anything else. But when God wants to drive it home, when God wants to show more convincingly to the heirs of his promise, he swore by himself. So that's what we know. 
God promises us throughout his word eternal life. And God doesn't go back on his promises. God never lies. God never goes back on what he says to be true. Let me give you some passages for that. Jot these down. Two from the Old Testament, two from the New. God never goes back on his word. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. God is not man that he should lie or the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he not said it and will he not do it? That's a rhetorical question. Has he not said it and will he not do it? Absolutely not. God's gonna do what he says. Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Absolutely not. If God says something, he's gonna fulfill it. 1 Samuel uh, 15, verse 29. And also the God of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he's not man that he should have regret. God will never lie to us. Uh, 2 Timothy in the New Testament, 2 Timothy 2, 13. I love this verse. If we are faithless, you ever been faithless? Yeah, I have many times. If we are faithless, God is what? He remains faithful. Isn't that great truth? And why does he remain faithful? Because he can't deny himself. He can't go back on his promises. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth, which according with God in us in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never what? Never lies. Promised beforehand when the ages began. Just think about that. Sometimes we're faithless, right? Sometimes we fail. Sometimes we, 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 we know what's right and we don't do it. Sometimes we know what's wrong and we do it anyway. We are faithless. And then there are times when because we are faithless, we don't, we don't feel like we're a a believer, right? We've let down God. We have volitionally done something against him. But salvation is not based on our feelings. It's not based on us. It's based on the promise of God. And what's that promise? For God so loved you that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall what? Never perish. You believe that? Never perish, but have eternal life. Now, that's a promise of God. He doesn't lie. He doesn't go back on his promises. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, because of the promise of God, you can know that you're a child of his and will forever be. Now, the writer says it's not only the promises of God is the basis of our salvation, but it's the Son of God that provides the basis of salvation as well. And here in these passages, the writer gives about four um, uh, descriptions or characteristics of Jesus to show that when we trust in him, we are his and will forever be. Here's the first one. Look at chapter 6 verse 18. So that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie. God gave a promise and then God swore by himself. The promise is the first thing. He swore by himself. That's the second thing. By these two 
unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We who have fled to refuge. Now, remember, the writer knows the Old Testament well, and who is he, who is he writing to? Jewish believers. So when he says, fled to refuge, it would have clicked in their mind from the Old Testament, Numbers 35, Joshua chapter 20, describe six cities of refuge. One was on, or three uh, were on uh, the one side of the Jordan, and three were on the other side of the Jordan River. Cities of refuge. And why would they have a city of refuge? Well, if you, if you um, were out in the woods with a group of people and you were chopping down a tree or you were cutting wood or whatever, and, and the head of your axe flew off and killed somebody, you killed them accidentally, right? Or if just, just out of a burst of anger, you killed someone. In, involuntary manslaughter, we call it today, right? If that happened to you in that day, there was the law of retribution. So, if you killed my brother, then I'm going to go get you. The law of retribution. Eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But if you killed someone accidentally, you could flee to one of these six cities of refuge. And you would go to the gate, and the elders would meet you, and you'd say, I need you to try my case. And you would go in, and you would tell them, and the woods and the axe flew off. I didn't mean to do it. And they would allow you to stay in the city of refuge. And the avenger, the, 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 the guy's brother you killed, he couldn't come and get you. As long as you stayed in the city of refuge, you were safe. And the writer says, man, that's like Jesus, right? We flee to him. He's our city of refuge. No avenger can come get us. We are protected in him. Satan can come at us all that he wants. But we are protected in Jesus Christ. He is our refuge. The second thing the writer says, Jesus is not only our refuge, but he is the sure and steadfast. Look at verse 19. He is the sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Just think about that. Everyone knows, knows what an anchor is and what it does, right? Heavy, shaft, barb, things on the end. You're in a boat. You drop the anchor. It goes to the bottom. It catches on the seabed. And then the wind comes, your boat stays there. Uh, the currents come, your boat stays there. As long as that anchor is down, you're not going to move. And the writer says what? Jesus says what? He's the anchor of our soul. He's not going to let it move. He's not going to let it drift. He's not going to let it go away. In fact, this was so, this, this, this picture of Jesus being an anchor of our soul was so uh, critical and so important and so powerful to the early Christians that that became a symbol of being a Christian. If you go uh, in the Roman uh, catacombs, the, the, the underground burial, they, they found uh, at least 70 pictures of, of uh, anchors where Christians were buried. Or when the Christians were fleeing the persecution, they would go hide out in the catacombs and they would, can you imagine? I mean, you're facing death. You're facing death itself. And you're saying, I might be dead tomorrow. 
But Jesus is what? He is the anchor of my soul. Man can kill my body, but Jesus has my soul anchored. Nothing, nothing can move it. Nothing can cause it to go away from him. It can't drift away. He's the anchor of my soul. What a powerful picture. Also, the writer says, Jesus is our refuge. He's the anchor of our soul. He is our high priest. Uh, look at verse uh, 19. We have this sure and steadfast anchor of our soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Now, the writer throughout Hebrews, and I know we're just joining uh, Hebrews here at the Ross Raver campus, but the writer through Hebrews has been saying, Jesus is greater than. Again, he's teaching and he's writing to a Jewish audience. Jesus is greater than the Old Testament law. Jesus is greater than the Old Testament covenant. Jesus is greater than the Old Testament prophets. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than the high priest of the Old Testament religious system. Jesus is greater than. And so he likens Jesus to the high priest who has come and he's entered in the Old Testament. The high priest would come and day of atonement, go into the holy of holies and make atonement for the people. Jesus is the one who has done that for us. He is the one who has entered into the holy of holies. And how did he do that? He did that by his death on the cross, not literally entering into the temple, but by his death on the cross. Now, we're going to get to this as we keep going through Hebrews. And in chapter 9, the writer uh, just uh, spends a whole section on Jesus as our high priest. Just a quick preview to that. Chapter 9, look at verses 11 and 12. But when Jesus, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, Jesus entered once for all. The high priest had to keep going back every year. But Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of, of, of the blood of, of goats and calves, but by means of what? His own blood. He was the one time for all time perfect sacrifice. And when he did that, check this out, talk about eternal security. Doing that, he thus secured, right, our what? Eternal redemption. On the cross... Jesus secured our eternal redemption. One more thing. Jesus is our refuge. He's our anchor. Uh, He's the one who paid the penalty for our sin, our high priest. Jesus is our forerunner. Look at uh, verse 20, back in uh, chapter 6. We have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul to hope that enters the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on what? On our behalf. Forerunner for us. A forerunner is a great word. It can mean a, it can mean a, it can describe a messenger that goes ahead with a message. It can describe an, an athlete. Uh, it can describe someone, a pioneer, someone who paves the way for us. And that's what Jesus has done. He's paved the way to heaven for us. He is our forerunner. He's gone before us. Let's, let's think about some of the ways that Jesus has been our, our forerunner. First, he became fully man, right? He's fully man, fully God. No one else like that. 
in being man, he lost none of his deity, put down none of his deity. And in being God, he was fully human. Again, no one like that. Jesus, we have read in Hebrews, was tempted, being human, he was tempted in every way as we are, but what? Yet without sin. So whatever temptation you're going through, whatever temptation I go through, I can't say, Jesus, you don't understand this one. Here's one you just don't get. This one's too strong. This one would have tripped you up. No, he has taken on every temptation, yet without sin. And then the writer says, because of that, he's our forerunner. He can come to our aid and give us all the help we need in our time of need. Jesus is our forerunner in the sense that he took on the wrath of God for us on the cross. Back in Genesis 2, you remember the story, don't eat of the fruit of the garden. If you eat it, you shall surely what? Die. And they did. They ate it. So uh, Eve took of the apple. She gave to, um, to Adam. They eat of the fruit. And then Genesis 3, the fall takes place. That takes place in Genesis 3. And death enters into the world. Physical death, for sure, but also spiritual death. Anytime you read death in Scripture, you're looking at physical death, spiritual death, separation from, eternal death, separation from God for eternity. So now death enters the world. The first thing that God does is he provides a sacrifice. He himself provides a sacrifice for Adam and Eve as he clothes them with animal skin. And then throughout the Old Testament, a system of sacrifice is put in place. So I'm an Old Testament believer. I go on the Day of Atonement. I put my head, and again, in our society, it's hard for us to think about, but I put my hand on the sheep or the, or the goat or the bull, and the throat of that animal would be cut. And, it, and as it was writhing in, in death throes, I would know that should be me. But God has provided a sacrifice. God's wrath came up on that animal instead of me, right? Well, Jesus became our sacrifice, one time for all time. Now, when we think of Jesus on the cross, what do we normally think about? We normally think of his pain, right? His physical pain. And it would be terrible. In fact, it was so bad, dying, being crucified, the pain was so bad, they, had a, they didn't even have a word to describe the pain. So they made up a word called, we, we, it's our word, excruciating. It means out of the cross. But that wasn't the half of it. As Jesus was, and we can't even hardly, we can't even imagine this. As Jesus was hanging on the cross, he took on the wrath of God on sin. Your sin and my sin and the sin of the world. As God poured out his wrath on the sacrifice, Jesus, Jesus cried out, remember? My God, my God, why have even you forsaken me? Some commentators say that Jesus said, I don't know how much longer, in my humanity, I don't know how much longer I can take this. The wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. He's our forerunner. He took the wrath of God for us, and now we don't have to take it. Jesus died for us on our behalf. Jesus tasted death for us, didn't he? Because of Jesus, the person who's trusted in him, doesn't have to fear death. Now, that's easy to say, right? 
I mean, I'm not looking forward to it myself. Anybody here? We fear death because we haven't experienced it. But the believer knows that we can pass from death to life. Think about that. The promise of Scripture, absent from the body, present with the Lord. We pass from death to life. John chapter 5, verse 24. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come to judgment, but he has passed from death to life. Now I know, and some of you here may have some some stories, and I've heard these stories about um, people who have been with their loved ones when they've when they've passed away, and you know some cool things have happened in the room, like their light in the room, or the person set up and and called out Jesus's name, or you've heard those stories. I don't doubt those stories. If that's your story, man, thank God for that. Most of the time. When I've been with people when they're dying, it's not pretty. It wasn't pretty when my dad died, and then unfortunately, I've been with some other families, and that's why that's why that's why Paul says that death is the last enemy. It's a judgment on our sin. It's not pretty. And I remember when my dad died, having that picture in my mind when we were gathered around him. He had cancer for for six uh, months, and it was not is not a pretty picture. But I remember after that, reading this, reading this passage, where Jesus said that my dad, because of his trust in him, had passed from death to what? To life. That changed the picture for me. What I had in my mind was ugly, but what had happened spiritually was beautiful. Passed from death to life. As a believer, you can have, you don't have to hope. You don't have to think. I shared uh, last week, a uh, friend of Lori's, uh, my wife Lori, uh, he, he said, well, here's, here's how it's going to be at the end of the day. You know, I, 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 God's going to stand with me, and he's going to have these scales, and I'm going to put my good works on one side and my bad works on the other, and I just hope my good works outweigh my bad. That's yeah, a little risky, isn't it? You don't have to do that. Not with Jesus. With Jesus, you know you pass from death to life. And Jesus has also been our forerunner as the one who was raised from the dead. Not only did he die, but he rose from the dead. He's our forerunner in that. So scripture says, when we die, absent from the body, present with the Lord. So the moment you die, pass from death to life. Absent from the body, you're present with the Lord. Your soul is in heaven with the Lord. We bury the body, right? Cremate the body. But there is going to be a day when Jesus is going to come back with those who have fallen asleep and their souls are going to come down and their bodies will be raised from the grave. And scripture says they'll join the Lord in the air and be with the Lord forever. And the scripture says, remember, therefore encourage each other with these words. What would be more encouraging than to know that? And what's a resurrected body look like? Just look at Jesus's resurrected body. 40 days after he rose from the dead, he walked on earth. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but Jesus gives us that example. So he is the forerunner through, our, through death, the resurrection, took on the wrath. He is our forerunner. When we trust in Christ, here's what I want to leave with. When we trust in Christ, here's what we know for certain. 
when we close our eyes in death, without any doubt, we know that we open our eyes and see Jesus face to face, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Now, that's not just some uh, cool thing to say just to, you know, uh, make us feel better when we think about death. That's the promise of God's word. What we believe is based on the promise of God's word, right? And his son, Jesus Christ, who did it all for us. Salvation is of the Lord. It's not of us. So I didn't get into Dallas Seminary, right? So I called this guy named Dr. Beveridge. At Dallas. I, I thought that was a cool name, Dr. Beveridge. And uh, I said, um, man, I really want to go to seminary there. And, uh, I, you know, I want to learn. I want to I learn the Bible. Obviously, I got some things to learn. And he said, you can come to Dallas Seminary if you come with an open mind. I thought all seminary students entered seminary with an open mind. And they don't, but, but I, I was ready to do that, right? My fall semester there, I took a class called Theology Proper, Study of God. And during that class, we talked about the unconditional love of God. Nothing we can do to make him love us more, right? Nothing we can do to make him love us less as a believer. We talked about the person of Christ. God loved us so much that he sent his son. And I'll never forget... In the fall, it was hot. Walking out on a hot parking lot. The heat coming up. And I had been thinking about that truth. And I I talked to some other students. And I finally got it (laughs) on that hot parking lot walking to my car. I am a child of God and will forever be. And nothing can separate me from his love absolutely nothing can separate me from his love. Now, that doesn't give me a license to go sin, right? That gives me the freedom to obey and to love Jesus who was my forerunner and did this all for me. And my prayer is that you know that today, that you know beyond any doubt, any doubt, where you're going to spend eternity. Not because of who you are or what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done for you. The truth of Scripture is this. As a believer, we can know that we know that we know that we know that we belong to God and we will forever belong to Him. We're going to send it back to the campuses now. Now, Let's pray and ask God to, to drill this truth home into our life. Father, thank you. Thank you that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Thank you, Lord, that when we are faithless, you are faithful because you can't deny yourself. You can't go back on your word. You promised that the believer is going to pass from death to life. And Father, I pray that that truth would be as freeing for everyone here as it was for me that day in, in Dallas, Texas. That that, that every person here would understand the, the, the unconditional, perfect love you have for them. And that that love would, would allow them to live a life full out, full orbed for you. Because the world desperately needs to see a believer who's acting like a believer, who's following hard 
after Jesus. And we want to be, we want to be those people here in Ross Traver. I pray, Lord, you'd help us do that in Christ's name. Amen.